Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast. I'm Alan Kudan, and this is Abby Branker. Hello. And today we're bringing you, what are we doing? Subterranean horror stories. There you go. Well done, Alan. Thank you. Thanks for taking the reins on that one. Well, someone's got to pick up the slack. (laughs) So yeah, as a companion to last week's episode in which we explored the history of subterranean horror, we have some examples of subterranean themed short fiction for you. However, before we get into that, we have something to say. We do? Yes. What is it? Which is this. After two years of not being able to create short films, which Speak is how... Speak for yourself. Which is how this project started, as a horror film project. Oh, you mean... Oh, yes. Not in, in general, like... Yeah, for lunatics. Right, because people have been making things. But we haven't, because of COVID concerns. Cor- well, right. Well, together we haven't. Correct. I still go to work. At, for lunatics, what we're talking about. Yeah, the the mo- right, because we used to make some movies. Yeah. Okay, well, that is our very, like, suave build-up to say that we made a short film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. and It's, it's good. We love it's it. A, We're okay. so proud of it. No, it's it's not, great. It's, it's great. amazing. It's, it really it's is. It's the best we've ever made. Yeah, uh, hands down, I would say. You can watch The Witching Hour now on our YouTube channel, which is The Lunatics Project on YouTube. We'll link it everywhere. But... We're incredibly proud of this. It was like really a collaboration between a lot of our friends and talented collaborators that we work with. And it just went super smooth. It was a film we started like pre-pro on before the pandemic. So it's been literally years in the making. Just so proud of it and really excited for you all to see it. And so we wanted to make sure that we announced that here. Yeah, I mean, we shot the whole thing in like five hours. Yeah, which is like insane. And we're pretty great. It, it just was, it had so much planning put into it that it, it operated smoothly. And Alan did an incredible job filming, lighting with his friend, Matt O'Brien. And it's with our friend, Matt O'Brien. And it turned out very well. And if I'm not mistaken, one of the stories that you're going to hear today was written and voiced by the assistant director on this film. That's right. Yes. Dan Roberts, assistant directed And he also wrote a story and performed it for this episode. And he also was in charge of the smoke machine. That's right. He was in charge, or the hazer. The hazer, that's right. It was a very distinctive difference. Big difference, yeah. Yeah. And also, again, I want to just plug Dan Roberts' uh, ongoing fundraiser for Covenant House for the Sleep Out, which is something that he does to help raise money for youth experiencing homelessness. And we'll leave a link in the bio, but you have until the end of March if you feel called to contribute to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 a great cause. A great cause. So shall we dive in to the stories of today? Uh yeah, let's do it. Okay. We're going to really like kick things off with a doozy, with a heavy hitter if you will. Okay. So we're not warming you up at all. We're just throwing you into the the ring. This is one of my like favorite short stories of all time. Oh. And it was especially impactful on me growing up. Twilight growing up no how old do you think i am i really wanted to include this story specifically in our edgar Allan poe series but i'm very glad that we didn't actually because i think it makes so much sense to have it as part of subterranean horror i'm going to give a little bit of a background the story was first published in november of 1846 in an issue of goodies ladies book magazine Mm. it is if you haven't guessed the cask of amontillado by edgar Allan poe And if you missed the Poe series, it's kind of one of my favorite series that we've done on the podcast. So I would encourage you to listen to that almost as a companion after listening to this because we have a lunatics library that's featured, like just stocked full of Poe stories. And you didn't include your favorite one? I I was going to record it myself, but we ended up getting so many other people who were interested in recording that we would have had like seven posts you know it was just too much too long too much poe yeah so we were like we'll do it again some at some point and here we are doing it you called it i called it and we also have our friend avi dobkin who's been on the podcast before he was on like one of the first episodes one of the first yeah he was most recently i believe a reader on the mermaid stories episodes where he read some poetry for us but 
he has joined us today to read this story. He does an excellent job, and I'm just super excited. He's our, he's our one of one of our go to guys for old timey, old timey, difficult to read. Just give it to Avi; he's gonna do great. Yeah, he's also just like a a language expert in a lot of ways, and so especially something like this story where there's a lot of uh, European words, like foreign words, Italian words, French words, Latin. He, he's a scholarly guy. He's a, he's an academic, I would say. Yeah, mm. he nails it. So here we go. Roll the tape. I think, I think the term is smarty pants. He's a sm- <laughs> Yeah, he's a smarty pants. All right. <laughs> okay, roll the tape. The Cask of Amontillado. Written by Edgar Allan Poe. Read the thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult I vowed revenge. You, who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length I would be avenged. This was a point definitively settled. But the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who had done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my good will. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato, although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared. He prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting and gemmery, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack. But in the matter of old wines, he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk, one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting, parti-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today. But I have received a pipe of what passes for a Montiado, and I have my doubts. How, said he, Amontillado, a pipe? Impossible, and in the middle of the carnival. I have my doubts, I replied, and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado, I have my doubts. Amontillado, and I must satisfy them. Amontillado! As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucchesi. If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me, Lucchesi cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry. And yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no. I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucchesi, I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no. It is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. 
The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is merely nothing. Amontillado, you have been imposed upon, and as for Lucchesi, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm. Putting on a mask of black silk and drawing a roquelaire closely about my person, I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honor of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning, and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance, one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. The pipe, said he. It is farther on, said I. But observe the white webwork which gleams from these cavern walls. He turned towards me and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the rayum of intoxication. Nitre? he asked at length. Nitre, I replied. How long have you had that cough? <coughs> 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 My poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. It is nothing, he said at last. Come, I said with decision. We will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy, as once I was. You are a man to be missed. For me it is no matter. We will go back. You will be ill and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucchesi. Enough, he said. The cough is a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. True, true, I replied. And indeed, I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily but you should use all proper caution. A draft of this madoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle, which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mould. Drink, I said, presenting him with the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly while his bells jingled. I drink, he said, to the buried that repose all around us, and I to your long life. He again took my arm, and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. The Montresors, I replied, were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot d'or. In a field azure, the foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune lacessit. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the medoc. We had passed through walls of piled bones with casks and puncheons intermingling into the inmost recesses of the catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The nitre, I said. See, it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, 
We will go back ere it is too late. Your cough... It is nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first, another draft of the Madoc. I broke and reached him a flasson of de Grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. You do not comprehend, he said. Not I, I replied. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You are not one of the Masons. Yes, yes, I said. Yes, yes. You? Impossible. A Mason? A Mason, I replied. A sign, he said. It is this, I answered, producing a trowel from beneath the folds of my roquelaire. You jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces. But let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again, arrived at a deep crypt in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead, in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth, the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mount of some size. Within the wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior recess, in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no especial use within itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depths of the recess. Its termination the feeble light did not enable us to see. Proceed, I said. Herein is the Amontillado. As for Lucchesi, he is an ignoramus, interrupted my friend, as he stepped unsteadily forward, while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant, he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. Pass your hand, I said, over the wall. You cannot help feeling the nitre. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No? Then I will positively leave you but I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado, ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, I replied. The Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones of which I have before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. 
With these materials, and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of my masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in a great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low, moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier, and the third, and the fourth, and then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which, that I might hearken to it with the more satisfaction, I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. I resumed the trowel and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused, and holding the flambeau over the mason work, threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams, bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form, seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment I hesitated, I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess. But the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I reapproached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamored. I re-echoed. I aided. I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this, and the clamorer grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last, and the eleventh there remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice, which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, Ha, 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 he, 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 a very good joke indeed. An excellent jest. We will have many a laugh about it at the palazzo. He, 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 over our wine. He, he, he. The Amontillado, I said. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado. But is it not getting late? Will they not be awaiting us at the palazzo? The Lady Fortunato and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said. Let us be gone. For the love of God, Montresor. Yes, I said. For the love of God. But to these words, I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud. Fortunato! No answer. I called again. Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick, on account of the dampness of the catacombs. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. In pace requiescat. This was your first time hearing the story, right? It, and yes, it is. You weren't familiar? Nope. Okay, so what are your thoughts? Uh, Poe is a complicated guy. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I want, like, he just thought this one up, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, people say, like, write what you know. <laughs> did, he, did he do this to someone? He's like, oh, yeah, my buddy Tyler, he loves walling people up. Tyler, yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. He has so many stories where the protagonists, I would even argue, do worse things. But yeah, this one is is up there. And it's certainly, I think, plays well into subterranean horror because obviously it takes place underground, but it also plays with the ideas of being stuck, of being claustrophobic, of being buried alive. Just all of the phobias, really. There's a, I don't know, there is a very big difference between being buried alive mm-hmm. and being entombed. Brick he, by brick he, he, by yeah, brick. hear me out. Sure. So like one, you know, you're going to suffocate real darn quick. Mm-hmm. If you are just bricked up in a tomb, who's to say you're even going to suffocate? You know, like there, there could be permeation. There could, you might just die of dehydration in the complete darkness. Right. That's horrifying Mm -hmm. i mean i know this is a horror podcast but that's horrifying yeah it's just like what a sick thing to do it's like starvation cages you know it's just these are terrible what a terrible way to go oh totally also like uh i'm not even sure what the narrator's uh motivations were he's like oh this guy wronged me well, that's certainly, I think, part of, you know, the intrigue of the story is that there is no clear motivation and you assume it has to be for this to be justice served, right? There has to be some egregious offense, but they are also very familiar and like friendly with each other. And so it's like, okay, is our narrator like exaggerating these things in his head? Is he exaggerating them in real life? Like, can we trust his like mental health or his understanding of the world like there's a lot of complexity because the reason is vague and you don't really know who you're rooting for i mean it's like right in the beginning he's like oh you know this guy you know what he did yeah ah what a guy right you know and then i guess yeah you just it's up to the reader's imagination yeah and like yeah as you go on you don't feel too bad for the guy because he seems kind of you know brackish mm-hmm. you know but it's, that doesn't mean he deserves brackish is water can a person be brackish yeah okay because that's how i feel about this guy but he doesn't deserve to be buried oh, alive no. absolutely absolutely not it's he didn't just softball in like oh yeah he was also a war criminal uh <laughs> you know it's a t- as as i stated it's a horrible way to go and th- i think what also makes this story so creepy is that and also this this really lends itself to Avi's performance. Mm. The narrator is like going about all these things with basically a smile on their face. Well, not only that, but they are, but they are also going about all of these things and totally convincing Fortunato to make all of the decisions. He's like, Oh, I have this rare wine, but like you wouldn't be interested, or oh, it's in the damp vault and it's too damp for you. You're sick, or it's too cold, or there's nitre, or you know, and he's yep. continuing to be like, No, I'm fine. Like he he does it in such a manipulative, coercive way, where Fortunato's like, No, let's go, let's go, especially as he's getting him drunker and drunker and drunker. Guy's got super villain written all over him. Yeah. But like it's such a Poe thing to put that person as the narration mm-hmm. you know what i mean whereas mm-hmm. like i feel like most writers would would be with the person who's being bricked up yep but you're and i think it's so interesting too at the last few sentences like when he kind of checks on fortunato and he you feel like his panic too it's just you know i don't know it's curious it doesn't stop him from what he's doing but no it's it's not like he's like he doesn't feel anything of it. It humanizes him a little bit. Yeah. Cause like you're there with well, it him. It makes you wonder what is the motive? Yeah, you do. But also, I don't know. I don't think there even really needs to be a motive. Mm-hmm. It's like, he just wants to do it. I don't even know if it like has to be to this guy. This guy could have like cut him off, right. you know, <laughs> at, at the supermarket. Right. Right. He could just be that level of crazy. Yeah, which exactly. But so like, yeah, cr- criminally insane. Right. Where uh, scarily smart, mm-hmm. very, very intelligent, mm-hmm. evil. Well, it's like the it's very much reminiscent of a socio or psychopath. Right. Yep. And again, yeah, super smart, very like can get what they want using their brain. 
has the ego to be bold enough to do it. Sure. And obviously lacking the empathy to, or like, you know, the humanity to understand why they shouldn't. It, it reminds me in some ways too of like crime and punishment, you know? I mean, it's interesting when you have these older works that explore this thing that wasn't really defined yet. You know, like now we're like, oh, it's a sociopath or a psychopath. And here are the famous versions of those people. But, you know, when Poe was writing it, it wasn't, something that you know maybe they had such a clear understanding of sure to your point it's like i wonder where he got the motivation yeah he's a weirdo <laughs> again avi did a wonderful job he did it it was very i was sitting next to him when he was recording and it was very chilling for me even just to hear him say the words you know he's good he's good very good we have another person who's very good i'm reserving judgment until we listen <laughs> okay so Next up, we have a flash fiction piece written specifically for this episode. What is a what is a flash fiction piece? It was written very quickly for a certain prompt, which is what you gave Dan, and he followed through. Oh yes, I, that was just a hey, want to write a story like right now? And he was like, yes, and he did. Sure, okay, and great. I'll record it. All right, let's let's hear it. All right, roll the tape. Under, written and read by Daniel Roberts. Clip. Titus winced despite his best efforts to hide the pain being inflicted by the masochistic esthetician. Hold still, she chided. Titus did his best to hold his skin taut as the thread slid and plucked the rogue hairs around his eyebrows. A teardrop slowly blossomed in Titus's eye duct before the elderly torturess finally told Titus to look. The dark eyebrows were immaculately shaped. I look angelic, Titus said aloud to his reflection. Titus paid the six dollars absentmindedly to the woman as he scrolled the text he'd missed. When are you getting to Steve's? Chi and Tab brought one bottle. Grab some gin. Yo, Alexa just tried to drink a 40 and threw up off the fire escape. L-O-L-O-L. New plan. Just meet us at Club 96. Pre-game's over. Good. The pre-game was always the least exciting part of the night. Anyone worth hooking up with there would have already been a notch in Titus's bed. As Titus grabbed his coat, the esthetician shook her head. You know there is rain tonight. You need a larger coat. Titus gave an authentic smile. Oh, don't worry about me. Who would wear a larger coat when he looked this good? He thought as he let the door of the small threading shop close behind him. He made his way to Chelsea from the Upper East Side, transferring three times to get to Club 96 on 16th Street. Inside Club 96, Titus entered a gyrating swarm of sweat-clad bodies. The thumping bass electrified the bodies against one another. After several hours, Titus couldn't remember if he'd ever actually seen his friends there. He was one with the swarm grinding his body along with anyone and everyone all at once, feeling his bare hot flesh against them, locking his lips and hands onto anyone he danced with long enough to give into a shared universal lust, humming in the space. At 1am, Titus was grabbing onto his mark as they left the club into the wall of rain coming down in sheets. Titus glanced at the body he'd planned to take home tonight. They clamored to an awning slightly down the block. Hey, so, uh, this is pretty bad. Uh, maybe my place isn't the best idea. Your place? Uh, that's not a great idea. Why don't I get a car? Uh, sure. Titus was reluctant to give someone his address, usually, but that had only really gone badly once. As his conquest looked for a ride, Titus saw the city for the first time. 16th Street was an open river of trash and murky water. Titus could hear sirens, but couldn't tell from where. Everywhere? He questioned in his fogged head, snapping a bit to attention. I- I'm not getting anything here. Listen, I I, I can't bring you home, and-, and we're not going to find a car, so I'm just going to split and try to make a run for it. Titus's words hit a wall of watering, water streaming down the awning before ever making it to the man running down the block into the night. Asshole! Titus shouted at him. He pulled his cell phone water, flecking the screen, unable to wipe it off fast enough to use the touchscreen effectively. 
He could make out a few texts on the lock screen. Do you see this? Fuck. Everything's shutting down. We gotta bail. Who would he even call at this point? The water seemed to be building faster, heavy drips pouring down on him as Titus looked up to see the awning drooping over burdened. It shuddered, and a split second, the awning was gone, replaced by a downpour of water. Gallons poured onto Titus, knocking him back and his phone falling into the flowing stream of 16th Street. Chasing it in the dark, it vanished into the torrent. With no other option, Titus tried to lead himself back to the subway, stumbling several times in the flood. Car alarms blared and emergency vehicles sped down the only streets left open. Titus finally found the subway entrance, heaving himself to the stairs. He became swept up in the gushing flood, his body slamming against the cement staircase, beneath the flowing stream as it carried him down into the subway stop. Garbled screams erupted from Titus as his pained body was dragged. The subway was empty and abandoned, but the emergency door was open and Titus crawled through the water with his last strength to get to the platform. Had he hit his head, he thought, trying to discern if the ringing in his ears was an alarm or not. Finally, at the platform, he looked from right to left, water streaming into the subway system. The platform looked barren, but everything was becoming blurry. Was that someone with a wheelbarrow? Titus questioned just before the world vanished around him. Blink, blink. Titus groaned into the wet cloth gagging his mouth. Yep, it was a wheelbarrow, he concluded. His hands and ankles were also bound behind him with twine. Titus pushed against his restraints as he could feel the motion of the cart beneath him. His cold, wet body throbbed. He held too little strength to fight and make anything but a feeble attempt. The motion of the cart went on through pitch darkness. Titus could only tell the difference between consciousness when he remembered the moments of hearing nothing, and those with the sounds of crunches of the wheels on track. At some point, Titus remembered thinking, I don't hear rushing water anymore. How long had they been going? They came to a stop, and Titus heard the hurried patter of feet. Entry to the Bishop Clytus, whispered a sinister voice. No! No go! No entry without tribute! A voice croaked, suddenly ending each statement with something between a belch and the croak of a frog. Wherever Titus was, he could not see a thing. The depths of this tunnel held no light, but he tried to silently wriggle his hands free from the cloth binding them. Keeping his wrists hidden behind his back, he could feel it loosening. I have tribute, Clytus. You overgrown wart. The quiet voice began to escalate. Look for yourself, he spat next. Clytus bounded over to the wheelbarrow and surveyed Titus. Titus couldn't see anything but shadow, but he knew his shadow was not human. It didn't seem to have a head but instead looked something like a giant potato. Clytus let out several of his odd croaking noises. Fine. Enter. He finally grunted, huffy from the exchange. A rattling noise, the metal grinding against metal, and suddenly a dim light began to emit from the widening crack of the door they were next to. With Titus's eyes finally adjusting, he made out what looked like the back of a waddling trench coat, next to a pale, slumped human. The man's skin was wan, and large pustules seemed to be oozing and boiling around his skin. Gross, thought Titus. The trench coat turned backing away from the door, revealing a squat green creature. A face jutted out softly from a pudgy, squat body. Was it Some kind of a frog? No, Titus couldn't tell what Clytus was, but it wasn't human. The other figure moved back behind the wheelbarrow and began to push Titus through the doorframe. The dank dungeon they entered gradually began to illuminate, and they grew closer to a giant flaming brazier. The cloaked figure stood by it. His hood drooped over his face, making Titus unable to see his face or any part of his skin. What do you have today, vermin? A cold practice voice came from the hooded figure. 
Oh, a very pretty one for you, Lord Humlow, Vermin told the figure pushing the wheelbarrow next to the fire so Titus could be surveyed. Hmm, yes, this does seem better than the usual dreck you drag in. After a few moments, the hooded figure added, Yes, this will do. Go and collect your boon from Clytus, unless you're one of the ones who wants to watch. I don't mind an audience. No, no, I I can't bear it, Vermin said hurriedly. He dropped the wheelbarrow and scampered away. Titus watched as Lord Humlet walked away from him towards a desk, returning with a jeweled dagger. Titus's eyes grew wide as he approached, and he could see only the dagger from the sleeve of the robe. Titus pushed desperately against the cloth bindings, trying to release his hands. He almost had it, but Humlow was on him already. Humlow grabbed what little was left of Titus's shirt, and Humlow severed it down the middle, dropping Titus back into the wheelbarrow, only to do the same to Titus's pants until all his clothing was pulled back, exposing his bare body. Do not fear, Humlow said as he put the dagger away in a pocket. His wickedly cold hands came out from under a cloak to inspect and prod Titus's body. In the under, the beautiful things of the over get to live forever. In one way or another. Finally, Titus felt himself slip the bindings while Humlow was inspecting his thighs. With everything Titus had, he kicked Humlow with both legs at once, tumbling out of the wheelbarrow as he did. Humlow had fallen back, but rose up quickly. His back turned to Titus. Titus clumsily sat up, quickly, trying to release the bindings around his feet. Titus finally freed himself and removed the mouth gag. As Humlow approached him, quickly getting to his feet, facing the cloaked frame of Humlow. Humlow reached into his pocket for the dagger. Titus dashed forward and grabbed for the arm of Humlow's cloak. As he seized it, his momentum carried the two into the desk where Humlow's back arched, knocking the hood of his cloak back. Titus kept pushing Humlow back, but slowly he straightened, revealing his face. <gasps> Titus gasped, as his own face grew white as he began to back away. Humlow's face was a mangle of different flesh tones, sewn or stuck onto pulsating muscle, a delicate chin with a broad nose, a mane of wild fiery hair connecting to a full cheek. The dagger in hand, Humlow discarded the cloak, revealing a patchwork bodysuit of different victims' body parts, large gaps still to be filled, eyes wide. Titus was struck at the complexity of each piece preserved unnaturally in its place. Willing himself to keep moving back, his leg hit something. Ah! Titus screamed as he started to trip over the wheelbarrow, trying to roll with his fall away from the attacker. But Humlow was on him. The dagger struck his back once, then twice. Titus screamed in agony as blood poured from his wounds. Humlow grabbed Titus, flipping him onto his back. Such a shame. I'll have to collect what pieces I can from you, Humlow said, more to himself than to anyone in particular. Humlow took out a thin, small scalpel then, and as Titus lay paralyzed, blood gushing from his back, Titus could feel his breath starting to fill with blood. As Humlow severed the skin above his eyes, screaming into the blood pooling in his mouth, a fountain of red erupting as the monster flayed Titus until Titus passed out from the pain. I think it's very interesting. You classify this as flash fiction. Flash when, floods. When there is, yeah, a flash flood. Huh? Oh. Very, a little bit of foreshadowing, perhaps? Perhaps. So what did you, I, okay, this, I'll start. I loved the Frankenstein gore ending. Obviously, we're big Frankenstein fans, Frankenstein's monster fans here. We have covered it quite a bit, but I thought it was a cool take to like literally have a villain or a monster creature that's like taking bits of other people's bodies, like even their eyes and like carving them out of their victims and like, you know, kind of creating themselves that way. I thought that was 
cool. Just like cool, you know, like a cool premise. I think Dan did a terrible job. And I only have to say that because his number one comment is that we give him too much praise on this podcast. And I'm actually so glad that you set me up, Alan, because he recorded a redaction that he wanted us to play. So I will play that right now. Okay. All right. Quick redaction. I believe the last time I was on the podcast, I had said that I occasionally think that Abby and Alan can be disingenuous with their high praise. But I meant that purely to me. In in the recent podcast, it came across that I may feel that they're like this about everybody. I do not think that. But with my own work, I sometimes worry that that it's disingenuous praise. But I'm getting better at accepting compliments. And now coming back to this, I'll say, Dan, that you're wrong, that we genuinely enjoy you and the things that you do. It's true. I was lying. <laughs> and we think it's a great story. It's, I, I, it, it's fun. And this, so it, I liked how it slipped into like D&D for a little bit there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you can just that. tell it's on the brain. Dan is currently running. He's our dungeon master. Yeah. He's running a campaign for us. And as soon as he's talking about literally cloaks and daggers. Yeah. Yeah. He pulled out his dagger for a quick hit. Like, come <laughs> on, Dan. I see right through you. I see through you, Dan. Yeah. This is a continuation of maybe this is foreshadowing for what we'll encounter on Sunday. Yeah, see you on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. But I, I felt the same way. It, it was cool because it starts in, you know, New York City and he's naming streets and clubs and you're like, okay, I'm in New York. And then suddenly very quickly you're in this total fantasy, like bam, flash flood right. fantasy world. Yeah. Which was just a cool like setup for it culminates, instead of being one or the other culminates in like car- carving, carving eyeballs and making Frankenstein. Hell Dan, yeah. you're checking all the boxes. That's right, Dan. <laughs> so one thing that I, I do want to bring up. And so this is, this is going, we're jumping back a little bit to Avi again. When we were going back and forth preparing for this library episode. Yeah. Uh, uh, Grace, so Davi's partner, brought up that we should really play Rachmaninoff's Prelude in C major. Mm-hmm. Because? And, and uh, you know, it's like, okay, well, why? <laughs> and the the reason uh, is that apparently this entire piece was based on a dream that Rachmaninoff had about being buried alive. Amazing. And so, like, I, I have, I'm not going to pretend to know anything about classical music. Mm-hmm. But uh, since I've discovered them, I've always loved uh, Rachmaninoff and Chopin. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like most of the stuff they put out, is every time they drop an album is just like <laughs> straight fire, you know? Uh, I, but I, this, one, this piece in particular has always stood out, stood out for me yeah, uh, as just like one of my favorites. And so to find that there's like a really cool inspiration behind it. And when you just picture this, listening to this piece, it's so freaking cool. Absolutely. It is. It's, it was a really trippy experience listening to it, knowing that because I wasn't I'm not familiar at all with the composer. And I was like, whoa, damn, this is cool. Now, the kicker is that while we want to play it, we can't. Yeah, because while this is obviously public domain because of it's how old, how old the piece is, the composition is. Yeah. Yeah. The the you can't just play any old recording because the recordings are all licensed and copyright issued. So, um, if anyone can play Rachmaninoff's <laughs> Prelude in C major and just send us the recording, we'd happily play it on the podcast. Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. And in the meantime, feel free to listen to it on YouTube where it's readily available or anywhere else. Can, but can we put a link to YouTube? Uh, yeah, I could put a link to it. Okay, in the she's going to, she's going to put a link. It's good. It's good. Yeah, it's great. But yeah, also would love to feature a, a version of it. If anyone is up to the task, please so, do. Yeah. Let us know. And if you want to uh, improve it. Right. Riff off of it. I mean, don't, don't hold back. <laughs> as I say, just don't do oh, it. Don't, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. It's, we want to, it's pretty good as is trying to improve this piece would be like the guy that took it upon himself to like restore that Jesus painting in Spain. What Jesus painting in Spain? Oh, sorry. This was like a huge meme here. I'll, I'll just show you a picture. So he was a, ama- a uh, amateur art restorer in Borgia, Spain. And yeah, here you go. This is S.A. Homo, which is Behold the Man, and this is what he did to it. <laughs> That's like what it would look like if I tried to do it. 
it, it's like you know it looks like a little kid painting exactly so anyone that has either very young siblings or kids it, you know if you're doing a drawing or something and they say oh my god can i help i'll draw the face and you know you'll have this like perfect you'll have this absolutely beautiful thing and, and just like yeah, a three-year-old will draw the face yeah yeah that's that's right so funny. not calling y'all three i don't know what um, point i'm making here we're just we're this we have microphones and we're talking into them that's li- that's all that we guarantee here that's exactly thank god <laughs> we have editing to cut all this bullshit out well i might keep it in maybe i hope you don't <laughs> well you'll never know so yeah this one we had two doozy we had two long stories mm-hmm. which is good i wish we had a third story mm-hmm. but we don't so that's on you dear listeners for not submitting more (laughs) yeah and as always you can we have a writer's mailing list where we send out the upcoming podcast themes so that your work can be featured on the show we love to feature work and uh you can dm me anywhere on social media to sign up for that or if you email the lunatics project at gmail.com we'll get you signed up for that and yeah that's the best way to kind of submit work to us and we would love to continue to feature the work of new writers. So good job, Avi. Okay job, Dan. Yeah, Dan, we're not impressed. <laughs> we're just kidding. It's I know great. it's hard we're to so, even. I can't even. We say can't the even joke. do it. It's so good. We everything you do is just t- just turns to gold. So keep the opposite keep up, of that. Restore. Keep up the exactly. You you go touch up some Jesus paintings, please. <laughs> yeah, keep up the good work. Thank you guys all so much for being here. We will see you the next time that we talk. It will be our 100th episode. Is that true? That's true. Again, wow. our 100th official episode. We're actually quite above that, but big episode coming next and then a pretty exciting follow-up after that. So we're thrilled. And After that, though, straight garbage. For... <laughs> yeah, that's all we can promise. That's it. thank you guys so much for being here we'll talk to you soon bye bye thanks for listening if you'd like some bonus content consider supporting us on patreon to access our patron exclusive podcast horror movie club Also head to lunaticsproject.com to check out our spooky merch and apparel. You can find us at Lunatics Project on Twitter and TikTok and The Lunatics Project on Instagram and YouTube, where you'll find our short horror films, cemetery tours, and so much more. And please rate and review. A little feedback goes a long way to help us grow and get more content out there. Our cover art is by Pilar Kep, and musical bumpers are by Michaela Papa and Jordan Moser.